Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth control. Ho Chi Minh. Richard Nixon back again. Moonshot. Woodstock. Oh, let's go and party. Three days of peace and love and brown acid. Hello again and welcome to episode 101 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is now, all dictated by Billy Joel's imagination and ability to make major global events rhyme. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, we are going where no other podcast goes because no one else has Billy by their side. Nobody has Billy by their side, and nobody is going to be taking a deep dive into the halcyon days of August 1969 at a festival that was billed as an Aquarian Exposition, three days of peace and music, more colloquially known as Woodstock, which happened on a dairy farm in upstate New York? I mean, I don't know. Does that sound auspicious to you, Tom? Well, Katie, we should let listeners know that in the spirit of Woodstock, we're both sitting here stark naked. Um, (laughs) Covered in mud. Covered in mud. I'm wearing um, a set of beads. You have a headdress on. Um, It's nice and warm in this studio, so we're fine. But we thought it was was fitting to get into the spirit of things. I like it. I just, I like uh, method podcasting. (laughs) Now, I do have a Woodstock connection, Tom. Um, oh. Although not Woodstock 69, Woodstock 94. Ah, oh, the Be- second coming. The second coming. Uh, this was a little uh, MTV gig that I did, and I was presenting out in the muddy fields of Socrates, New York, nearby to where the original Woodstock was held. This time, the acts weren't Joe Cocker and Jefferson Airplane. It was more like Nine Inch Nails and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Cypress Hill and the Cranberries. But most importantly, it was me in my lumberjack boots, milkmaid <laughs> blouse, and Daisy May denim mini. I look like Heidi in heat. Watch out for my pigtails, people, because they sting on bare skin. <laughs> Well, Casey, that was the second coming, and there was, of course, a third coming to Woodstock in the mud and the chaos of 1999. Yes. But let's talk 69, shall we? Yes. Well, thank goodness it's not just going to be us rabbiting away, although we'll do our best. Our expert today is an award-winning biographer and author, Bob Spitz. His books include Barefoot in Babylon, the creation of the Woodstock Music Festival, which is why, Bob, you are here today. Welcome. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much. So... 
of course, outdoor popular music festivals are entirely commonplace nowadays. Help us understand, Bob, how unusual a proposition Woodstock was back in 1969. It was great. Uh, There had been a few minor festivals in the United States, one in Atlanta, one in Atlantic City before that, but nothing on the scale of Woodstock. And I understand that they didn't actually set out to do a music festival. I thought it was more like an opening night party for a potential recording studio that they wanted to build in, in Woodstock. Well, that was the way that Mike Lang and Artie Kornfeld presented it. Yeah. Uh, they always wanted to do a festival, but I, I will tell you, it was also a drug deal. Ah. Mike and Artie were going to bring in tons of marijuana and uh, tunnel it underneath the little studio that they were going to build in Woodstock. So this was all part of the fantasy that they were dreaming up at the time, that they presented to uh, the money men, John Roberts and Joel Rosenman. Okay, so they've decided to put the big festival on, Bob. What are the great issues they have? I suppose they need, first of all, they need a place to hold it, and then they need a lineup. Even before that, the, the interesting thing was that Lang and Kornfeld needed two suckers. <laughs> and, and basically, it was Mike and Artie who were hippies, and John and Joel who were absolutely dyed-in-the-wall Ivy League money men. And they were the same age. But if you looked at them, you would see right away that their identities were completely different from each other. They were in completely different orbits. That's where it started. And then they started pitching ideas. Where would we have it? Who was going to be there? How were we going to do this? Mike and Artie introduced John and Joel to dope, beautiful young girls. (laughs) And all of a sudden, the suits came off. The hair started to grow long different philosophies. Uh, it, it was a real it was a real meeting of the minds. I'm curious about the mood in the country's youth at this time in the United States, because, of course, the Vietnam War would have galvanized teenagers in common cause for peace. There was a sense that the older generation had screwed things up and that the peace and love hippie philosophy showed a new and better way. Absolutely. That was exactly what was going on. And yet the peace and love hippie philosophy was deeply suspect by guys like John Roberts and Joel Rosenman. They didn't they didn't fall for it at all. This was the great divide at at the time. And yes, That whole hippie philosophy was taking over. But as we know from uh, what happened at Woodstock, uh, it was really Woodstock was the beginning of the end. And so they had the first order of business was, as Tom was suggesting, was to even find a place to hold it. How do they go about shopping for real estate? Uh, Well, first, Michael and Artie convinced John and Joel that they all needed Porsches. That's (laughs) the central part of the hippie dream. Exactly right. So John and Joel, who were putting up the money, bought Porsches for the new company and they went to upstate New York and they drove roads. They looked around at different communities. John and Joel, one Sunday afternoon, had come across a milk farm in a place called Wallkill, New York. And they found a grumpy little farmer who was willing to talk to them and rent out the field. And when Michael and Artie saw it, their hearts sunk because there was nothing gorgeous about it. They had some idyllic idyllic place in mind. This was not it. But they had no other options at this point, and they needed to get things going. So they made a deal with this guy, Howard Mills, 
And and that's how it began. And why did the festival not end up on that location? What happened in between? Well, the community absolutely wanted no hippies in that place. They had a, a bedroom police community that lived around there. And the cops didn't want it. They didn't want any hippies in their community. And they had a, a number of uh, town meetings that uh, I, I must say Michael and Artie and John and Joel attended as a unit and really presented their bids really well. The, the newspapers at the time really supported these four kids who were trying to, to get this festival off. As it turned out, the uh, community voted it down only um, a couple weeks before the festival was about to begin. So they had their uh, artists lined up. They had a, a, a full gang working on the fields. They had the staging up. Everything was ready to go when the town pulled the plug. The guys didn't know what to do, but they were determined to get the festival on it at any cost. And really, at any cost is the buzzword now, because John Roberts, who was putting up most of the money, which came from a family inheritance, was just draining his inheritance left and right to get this thing going. So it was a it, it was a real comedy. I mean, it, it was an adventure and a comedy going on at the same time. So it was a money pit. And then Max Yasger comes into the picture. Who was he? Max, another grumpy milk farmer. Max was not an easy guy to get along with. Uh, he was a businessman from the word go. But he thought these kids got a raw deal. And he didn't like what Wallkill had done to them. And so he determined to uh, put on the festival and give these kids a fair shake. Again, the town was not happy at all, but Max held a lot of sway in this town. He um, he had a, a lot of money invested in it. His business did incredibly well, contributed to the community. And uh, he was determined to push it through, and he did. What strikes me when I look at clips from this time in various documentaries that I've looked at about Woodstock is this innocence at a time where, where people in America were less tribal. So, yes, there's a culture clash. There's kind of a, a generation gap, of course, different ideologies and philosophies competing. There's definitely a tension. But the fact that this very conservative middle-aged guy, Max Yasger, who is a farmer and a businessman, and he's willing to extend a hand across the aisle like, hey, these kids are hardworking. They say they just want to listen to some music. Uh, and he's kind of offering his land to be effectively trashed as it was. But he, he sees that this is just an innocent endeavor that is actually kind of a beautiful thing. So at heart, he's buying into the hippie philosophy. Yes. You know, I've often said that Max was the perfect hippie parent. <laughs> and I must say that by this time, John and Joel had bell bottoms on yeah. and they had joined the tribe along with Mike and Artie. Max took them all under his wing. Yes, if you can't beat him, join him. So let's talk about the bill. Who was the first act that they booked for Woodstock? Yeah, it was Credence and Blood, Sweat and Tears. Okay. They decided that to attract any acts whatsoever, they had to overpay. So while Credence and, and BS&T were getting, I think they were getting something like $2,500 uh, a night for a gig. At the time, uh, the guys paid them each $10,000. So once they had the two crowning acts, 
everybody else fell in line. But some other people said no, didn't they? Uh, a lot of people said no. The Beatles said no. Bob Dylan said no. Uh, the Stones said no. Led Zeppelin said no. And Dylan lived down the street. What was his excuse? Yeah, his excuse was that he was supposedly in a motorcycle accident at the time. You know, I was Dylan's biographer, uh, his first biographer, and and that was a bit bogus as well. <laughs> the whole weekend, the eyes were on uh, the wings at the concert, thinking that Bob would make an appearance. But of course, he did not. The thing is, Casey, I suppose you don't know when you're saying no to Woodstock, you don't know Woodstock is going to become Woodstock. Right. So if you're Led Zepp's manager, Peter Grant, you just, you're an egomaniac and you've got your own route planned. If you're the Beatles in 1969, as we know from the Get Back documentary, it's all getting a little bit bitter. I do think there is a sliding doors moment, though, here, isn't there, Bob? Because we're all familiar now because of the Woodstock film with some of the great performances. It's tempting to think what might have been for some of these acts. Like if it was incredible to have Hendrix there, what it would have been like to have the Rolling Stones. Or at the time, Led Zeppelin. Uh, Peter Grant decided that he didn't want to to place his band opposite people like The Who and uh, Jimi Hendrix. And he wasn't going to have them on, on the same bill. But yeah, I mean, it could have been even bigger than it was. As it was, uh, Woodstock is Woodstock, and we really can't complain when you look at the lineup. I think uh, also The Who was probably the biggest act on the bill at, at the time. Yeah, and it also was the debut of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which I guess after the fact, and certainly for me as a CSN fan, I think it's a big deal. But perhaps at the time, it would have been just more of a, I don't know, folky curiosity for those in attendance because it was their debut and they hadn't actually recorded anything yet. Yes, and I can tell you this with some authority because uh, Graham Nash is a very good buddy of mine and I ghost wrote his memoir. He's told me subsequently that they were scared stiff. When they say that they were scared stiff, it wasn't an act. He remembered coming in. Uh, he came in on a helicopter and saw the uh, the incredible crowd. He'd never seen anything like it in his life, and it really it totally frightened him. And also, their helicopter had a problem. <laughs> it looked like it was going down. Oh, uh, and it had an incredibly hard landing. So that by the time Crosby, Stills, and Nash got on stage, they were a wreck. <laughs> I mean, they really were. Incredible. And so let's talk about uh, the chaos and the near catastrophe or actual catastrophe of of the infrastructure and the logistics of the festival, because they had a point where they weren't sure if they needed to finish building the stage versus finish building the surrounding fences. Can you talk to us about that? As the festival started to come together, and it was a hippie crew, kids who had volunteered, a lot of people came from San Francisco early and joined the crew and helped build that stage. Um, they realized that it was all a last minute thing trying to get it going. What they hadn't put up, of course, we know that now, were the fences. There were a few fences, but not many. And so, as again, as we know from the film, three days before, kids started trampling the fences and uh, John Roberts knew very early on that his entire inheritance was gone and that he was not making any money on this festival. I've, as I've been reading about Woodstock and watching clips again, Bob, I found myself wondering what it would have been like to be one of those young people heading in a, in a beat-up car on those country roads to Woodstock because at this point, 
you listen to your records and you've got friends who are into the same records as you, but a lot of these kids would have been growing up in straight-laced towns, in straight-laced cities, and they wouldn't have spent that time with as many people who look like them and love the same music as them. It was a complete epiphany for kids, really. It was a romance from the beginning to the end. As you said, uh, kids came from all over the country and not knowing where they were going or what they were really going to see. I mean, sure, there were lists of bands, and but it was a call that they were answering. The roads were not just jammed in New York, but the, all the trains were, were overbooked with kids coming from, from everywhere in the country. It's so spontaneous. That's the thing that's, that's so wonderful. You know, it's, it's a leap of faith that the attendees are, are making. There's no way that you would have been able to have that experience at that time. Like nowadays, okay, you know, to go on TikTok and, and, and meet your people or go on Instagram or go to this club and you'll see other people like yourselves. But the fact that just out of the blue, you travel, you know, planes, trains, automobiles and then you're trudging up a dusty road and then there's half a million people dancing naked in the mud. I can't even imagine sort of how life-changing that would be. One of the things that really saved the festival and kept it mellow was the drug at the time, which was marijuana. You know, if you had a festival five years later and kids had cocaine and speed and everything else, I think you might have have had a different temperament at that festival. But the fact that everybody was stoned and mellowed out, it really set the vibe. Yeah, there was a, um, just when I was boning up on the topic, there's a a really good uh, documentary. You can see it on YouTube. It was put through PBS, so it used a lot of the original footage that appeared in the original Woodstock documentary, but also it was a commentary from the organizers and some of the participants, including... Wavy Gravy, who was part of the hog farm. Talk to us about what the hog farm was and who Wavy Gravy was. Sure. Well, you know, the hog farm was a was a, a commune in, in California at the time. They were supposed to come to just set a vibe, keep kids mellowed out. Uh, they knew how to deal with kids who had bad acid trips. Yeah, because they put freakout tents up. Can you, what were the freakout tents? This was a place where if you were freaking out, you could come and they would talk you down. So good. But I, I must tell you that the hog farm weren't all peace and love. If you crossed them, if you didn't do what they had said, they got nasty very quickly. But they set up their pop-up commune on the Woodstock site and they had their own stages with their own bands and some food tents and stuff. And they ended up feeding the festival, didn't they? The the, guy, the guys who uh, were hired to feed the festival had no idea how to feed people. They were basically scam artists. And there were lawsuits that, that followed for years with these guys. So there was really no food for the kids. Uh, the hog farm came through. You know, they made all kinds of of oats and groats and healthy drinks. They also went out to the community and got all the, the people from the community who, many of them who had opposed the festival from the beginning, to open their doors, to bring all the food out of their houses, uh, whatever they had to help feed the kids. It, it was a gorgeous thing that happened. 
Katie, I've got two issues with the freak out tents. The first thing I think is if you were freaking out and then you looked up and you were surrounded by other people freaking out, <laughs> it would negate the whole purpose of the freak out tent. The other thing, the famous announcement, Bob, that comes from the, the stage about the brown acid. If you were freaking out on the brown acid because, quote, it specifically wasn't too good, I think being told that the brown acid specifically wasn't too good would only worsen your headspace. Uh, probably, probably so. They were so out of their skulls at the time and having such a good time. Nothing bothered them, really. Nothing bothered them at all. The thing that was so charming about those messages from the stage, which were imparted by Wavy Gravy, this was very much uh, the only way to communicate at Woodstock. I mean, it was the days before mobile phones, of course, and uh, people would give messages at the information booth. And uh, I'm just wondering what kind of uh, messages were they? I mean, do do you recall? Aside from the fact that things were told to the crowd, there were parents who were really concerned about their kids. And so a lot of the, the messages that came out from the stage were so-and-so, call your mother, oh. <laughs> call your father. Uh, and so kids would line up at the payphones and you called home. So there were long lines at the payphones. And one of the things that uh, John Morris, who commanded the stage most of the time, uh, the announcer for the festival, said that he kept talking to the kids all the time just to keep them mellowed out, to, to let them know that someone was in control, that uh, they were being taken care of. And if they needed anything, there were places that they could go for help. And if you were one of the kids in the crowd, Bob, how much could you see in here of the big acts on the main stage? Because there are hundreds of thousands of people in there. Yeah, believe it or not, the sound systems were fantastic. Chip Monk, who went on to become, of course, uh, one of the premier sound and stage men, set up the, the staging. And they had, you know, you've seen in Woodstock those towers with the uh, the speakers on them. You might not be close. You might have to imagine uh, Santana on the stage, uh, but you could hear very well. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals.
always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan style almond crusted salmon, and it was absolutely delicious. These are no fuss, no mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Simply heat and savor the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customize your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Let's talk about some of those acts who made such an impact because there's always someone who makes a festival. There's always someone who maybe is broken to a bigger audience by a festival. The first one I want to talk about is Richie Havens. Yes. So Richie Havens, folk singer, he opens the festival pretty much by accident. He does. And I have to tell you, Richie was my neighbor in New York and for years afterwards, he would come and sit on my stoop and talk about Woodstock. With me. <laughs> Amazing. He was probably traumatized by it. Traumatized and completely transformed by it. I mean, he was there. He had no idea he was going on first. He was literally pushed on stage. <laughs> Here they were with all these kids sitting in this bowl on a gorgeous sunny afternoon. It was getting hot. The promoters wanted to make sure that, you know, everybody was calm. And so John Mars convinced him to go on first. And really, he did. He gave him a little shove and Richie, you're on. <laughs> and that was it. He basically played coffee houses in, in America and it transformed his entire career. And of course, nobody can ever forget, you know, freedom. It's an amazingly powerful thing, Katie, isn't it? When you watch it, because Richie Havens has got a fantastic voice. Yeah. It's, it's quite a rough voice, but a powerful voice. And you can't believe for the size of the audience that one man with an acoustic guitar yes. can do so much. Yeah. And he ended up playing for two hours. And then at the very end, he ran through all his material. And that's when he made up his closing song, Freedom. And you can see in the footage, the whole audience is, they, like, they've learned the song on the spot and they're all singing with him. It's like they're just having this communion, this sacred communion, just spontaneously right then and there. Yes, it's, it set the pace for the entire festival. And and it, as I said, you know, for, for years afterwards, he talked about it. It was probably <laughs> the highlight of Richie's life. Let's talk about a couple of those other iconic performances, Katie. So one, I think, which always stands out for people is Joe Cocker. Yes. When Joe Cocker, humble son of Sheffield. Yeah does a cover version of The Beatles with a little help from my friends. And yeah. it is in those lists where you sort of try and put together the best cover versions of all time. Yeah. Often frequently appears, doesn't it, Bob? Because it's an extraordinary rendition. And it's something about the rendition that works for that moment and works for a live audience. Yeah, Joe really hit it out of the park. Uh, again, I talked to him sometime later and he was 
totally freaked out to go on stage in front of all those kids. But he told me that once he hit the stage, something snapped in him. And he he felt that crowd. And he, he, he told me that he became part of that crowd. He said to me that he was just going to let everything he had come out in that song. And, uh, and of course, it did. And, and basically, while he's performing, you know, those clouds are building up overhead, the rain clouds. So there's a this fantastic performance, but also a performance of the heavens as well. It also becomes the de facto Woodstock theme song, doesn't it? With a little help from my friends, because everyone's pulling together and you hear the announcer from the stage as the clouds are ominously opening up. He's saying, "Okay, everybody, just sit tight. If you don't have a tent, just pull a cover over your head and, you know, get in close to your new friends because we've got to sit this one out. And it's very comforting and it's an invitation to, you know, we're going to get through this because we're all together everything's okay. It's cool. It's mellow. (laughs) It was on stage and it was on the field, but in the production tent at the time, (laughs) John Roberts and Joel Rosenman were in the production office. It was about a half mile away and they were freaking out. (laughs) There was no money. The rain was coming and they realized that there were cables, high tension cables, all over those fields with kids sitting in them. They really felt like they had betrayed everybody by not planning better and not taking into the weather into more of a consideration. What about Jimi Hendrix? Because I sort of assume that he must have played at 10 o'clock at night or 11 at night, just, you know, with pitch black under massive lights. It was something of a shock. Bob to be reminded that he came on stage at half eight on a Monday morning, which feels like the least Hendrix time of the week yeah, you could possibly imagine. It, it's time to go to work. It's time to yeah, go to school. It's the absolute dog end. It's the worst time of, of the, the week. festival. Yeah. There's no one left really hanging around to watch. Well, there's a very good explanation for it. Jimmy didn't show. Ah. Getting Jimmy anywhere at the time was an ordeal. Uh, but they finally got him there. They got him on a on a helicopter. He didn't want to go in a helicopter. He was pretty well stoned. Thought the helicopter was some kind of a bird. And that's when they could get him to the festival. So, you know, you get there Monday morning, you're going on. And let's talk about somebody who uh, was supposed to go to the festival, wanted to go to the festival, and didn't go to the festival. That was Joni Mitchell, who wrote the emblematic song about the experience, Woodstock. How come she didn't show up? Well, you know, I've since learned this even more because when I was writing Graham's book, I also spoke to Joni about it. Yeah, because she and Graham were together at the time. Is that right? They were together at the time. They had all been in in the Hilton in New York the night before. Joni couldn't go because she had a gig on the on the Dick Cavett show. That's right. (laughs) And she was not going to give up a national audience. She really wanted to go. I mean, she was really wanted to get on that helicopter and go with them. But she and her managers knew that she had to to fulfill this obligation. And she was uh, she was brokenhearted, but she sat in that hotel room and wrote that gorgeous song. And also the thing about that song is that I'm so impressed that she managed to capture the nature of this blissful, awe-inspiring festival that also 
encompass the kind of melancholic sadness that an era was passing. You know, it was just this transitional, transcendent moment that could never be recaptured. It's she did really sum that up in in her song. She she did, but uh, you know, I'm one of those people that thinks Joni Mitchell can do no wrong. Me too. And she is um, the only person who could have not been there and brought all the emotion and all the spirit. Uh, and said the right things that needed to be said. But Bob, how annoyed must she have been when Crosby, Stills and Nash showed up and barged into the Dick Cavett taping when she was there? They managed to make it back in time. Yes, she could have gone, and uh, and and that was the irony of the entire of, of her entire performance. So we've been talking about this festival in in sort of terms that make it sound wonderful because I think all of us, well. Certainly, Kate and I would have loved to have been there had it been a different age. But, Bob, there is a totally different reaction from some sections of the media. I'm going to read you a couple of headlines from the Times. One from the Daily News. Hippies mired in sea of mud. And the next one from the New York Times. Nightmare in the Catskills. Well, of course, the media didn't understand it at the beginning. You know, it was the straight media. And, of course, you know, they flipped very quickly after that because... They had to, not just because of the festival, but because the entire world saw that these promoters, these artists, these kids pulled off the miracle in in the Catskills. They really did. And so everybody came to the show very quickly after that. But you're right. At the beginning, they were condemned. I remember I was sitting at home watching the news, thinking to myself, Good thing I didn't go. <laughs> oh, yeah, because there was uh, the New York governor, Nelson Rockefeller, who we were supposed to have covered earlier <laughs> in this podcast, but we got a little mixed up and we did a different Rockefeller. Anyway, he threatened to send in the National Guard. Thank goodness he was talked down from that. But in fact, the U.S. Army did show up because they had a chopper and 45 doctors because they were uh, there were some medical emergencies going on as well as the mass starvation. Yeah, they did. They did. They showed up and they were um, they were incredibly helpful, as were the New York City cops. Oh, the New York City cops who really scorned hippies, really scorned hippies. They weren't supposed to be there. They were They were told beforehand, do not show up in your uniform. We do not support this thing. And yet so many of them came dressed in jeans and T-shirts and helped uh, with security at the festival. And, and I think it, I talked to a lot of those cops when I was writing my book, Barefoot in Babylon. The cops told me that they... Uh, they really had a change of heart there. They really saw that the kids were great. Uh, and uh, a lot of them uh, completely changed their attitudes thereafter. So we talked about the mud. We should mention the toilet problems, only uh, one toilet per 800 people. Uh, there were a couple of overdoses. Somebody was run over by a tractor. That didn't end well for them. And then the aftermath apparently looked like a Civil War battlefield and the place stank. Max Yasger couldn't have been too happy about that. Yeah, the cleanup was horrible. I mean, it was just, it, it did look like a Civil War battlefield. And and Mike Lang told me that Max went out in the field with him afterwards. They walked the field. And Max did this often. He would have a pad and pencil and he would wet the pencil with his mouth and he would just add figures. <laughs> that last morning, he walked around with the four promoters, not the four, Artie was two out of it at the time. 
but Michael, John, and Joel uh, with his patent pencil and just added more money. John was broke at this yeah, point. It ruined his him. inheritance had gone. His brother and his father uh, drove up to White Lake and decided that they were not going to declare have him declare bankruptcy. They were going to use all of their family money. Oh my gosh! To bail out the entire cost of the festival, and they did. They paid for every last cleanup, every act, every uh, every person who brought a claim against the festival. Uh, the Roberts family really stood up for me. John Roberts was the hero of uh, of Woodstock. But he was rewarded in the end because the footage that turned into the Woodstock Academy Award winning documentary film. So they must have made a pretty penny out of that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, John told me that every time someone said that to him, that was his nightmare because his father made him sign away the entire rights to the album and the movie no. for $50,000 to bail out the family and pay for the expenses. Oh. So he had, he didn't participate in the profit at all. Oh. Uh, and he said, he told me that every time he has a nightmare, it's him signing away <laughs> all the rights to the festival. Wow. So in the aftermath of this incredible festival, do we see it, Bob, as a point where lots of other states, lots of other promoters, lots of other countries want to hold their own Woodstock and the seeds of Woodstock are spread around the world? Or is it almost the high tide mark for this particular part of the counterculture that it's so successful that it'll never again be that free? It'll never again be that relaxed? Well, I can tell you um, from from experience that uh, for the last couple of years, um, and I'm still doing it. I, uh, I am the Rolling Stones biographer. And so, uh, I've done a lot of research into the festival that happened a few months later in December, which is Altamont. And Altamont really put an end to festivals. It was the beginning of the end of the entire hippie culture. Uh, it brought the sixties to an end. And so there are just a few months from August to the end of the year in which Altamont put an end to the festivals. It's interesting. It's like Altamont and Charles Manson. Those were definite end stops to this idea of a, you know, an elevated consciousness where people could celebrate peace and celebrate creativity and come together without violence. And speaking of coming together, there's been subsequent attempts to recreate the magic of the original Woodstock. Woodstock 94, which I mentioned earlier in this podcast that I was a participant in as a as a TV host for MTV, and also Woodstock 99. And these are failed attempts. Why can't we recapture the Woodstock magic? It's just too cynical now, isn't it? It really is. And, and you really took the words out of my mouth. You can't recapture magic. These guys, the four guys... It was a fantasy and their fantasy came true. Like once you make it a, a corporate thing and you, you, you know, you try to put it together, it just falls apart. It, it's too, it, it's too cynical. And Bob, final thought, if people have never come across Woodstock, if they'd never seen a single performance, what one performance should people track down to truly understand the secret of Woodstock? Wow. That is really hard to say. I mean, 
for me, it's 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 always been Santana. Uh, you know, they were an act that nobody had ever heard of before. The promoters didn't want to put them on, but Bill Graham forced them on if they were going to get the Jefferson Airplane. He was their promoter in San Francisco, Bill Graham? He was exactly right. And so I think they paid something like $500 to, to put Santana on. And they blew the minds of everybody who was there. Not only in the fact that it was a great performance, but it was a different type of music. It was more of a world music. And, and they brought something to the festival, I think, that was completely different from all the other acts. Bob, it's been wonderful hearing all the stories of Woodstock. It makes me feel slightly sad, Katie, that we were unable to go, but I sort of feel like we've dipped our toes now. I feel that this has been an immersive experience, and the thing that's really good is in addition to Bob's very comprehensive book, we also have the Woodstock documentary, So, and we have people living, including the artists, that we can still enjoy, so there is a way to, to access this magic still. Bob, thank you so much. And finally, before we go, just um, a quick warning. The brown acid specifically is not too good. (laughs) I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. So, Katie, we've got a bit of a decision to make. Um, do we hang on here and uh, see Ravi Shankar, or um, we could maybe go and get some food, come back for Arlo Guthrie, or I know you're quite keen to see The Grateful Dead because they're going to do a 50-minute version <laughs> of uh, Turn On Your Love Light. You are just being <laughs> cruel because a 50-minute jam is not my jam. <laughs> I would not like that very much at all. No, I like the poignant song stylings of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, although it is on after my bedtime. But maybe I'll just dabble a little bit in the brown acid, not go the full tab, not the entire sugar cube, and maybe I'll be able to hallucinate my way into the wee hours. (laughs) There's something about this period, Katie, isn't there? And I think if you grew up in the aftermath of the 60s, you could sometimes be almost slightly resentful that the generation before you had so much fun, but Mm -hmm. also resentful that the participants would bang on about it so much. But to be fair, what an extraordinary time to be alive, to be a young person at that time. Let's say you were 18 in, let's say, 1965. 
And then your formative years were going from 65, 66, the summer of love and through to Woodstock. What a time to be alive. I mean, every day you had to restructure and recalibrate your whole view of your existence because the things that you grew up with and what you were taught by your parents was thrown out the window and you were just kind of busking it and making it up as you went along. And the thing that was so exhilarating about the experience was this whole stream of kids coming in in their parents' cars or camper vans or hitchhiking, whatever it was, buses, trains on these dusty upstate New York roads. They were also dragging the residents along with them. So whether it was Max Yasger, whether it was kind of the the stuffy, more conservative farmer community in the nearby towns. Everybody got brought up and captivated by this experience. Yeah, Katie, you're absolutely right. But for us, the festival is over. It's time for us to try and find our clothes wherever we we <laughs> left. And this this <laughs> this place looks like a Civil War battlefield, <laughs> minus the dead bodies. We are very much alive. I've been keeping everything in for three days, and I really need to find somewhere uh, to relax. If you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> if you would like another podcast to listen to before Katie and I return to your ears, try the Secret History of the Estonia. This is an investigation into the mystery of where passenger ferries sank back in 1994, killing 852 people. This was Europe's worst peacetime shipping disaster since the Titanic, and many people remain convinced the truth behind the sinking has been covered up. Journalist Stephen Davis hears unbelievable eyewitness accounts from survivors and speaks with investigators who've been working on the case for years. It is fascinating stuff and ends up delving into espionage, spies and the Cold War. Those are three points of pleasure for me. Definitely worth checking out. If you would like to get in touch with a story or a guest idea for the show, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We are at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. And do not forget to check out our marvellous merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. Do not miss an opportunity to shop. And Tom, our next episode, what is it? Katie, we go from the blissful utopia of Woodstock to the dark paranoia of Watergate. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade 
acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.